The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Every generation has its own set of existential questions, and for baby boomers, as you move into later middle age, one big question is this. How do you keep your life from getting stuck? Where do hope and vitality come from when you've seen more and more of life? Is it time to just wind down? Can you really be a source of life for others? The Reverend Dr. Paul Zoll has just written a new book on baby boomers all about these very questions. And while the book was written and meant for boomers, his stories and insights really could work for any stage of life. As long as you're interested in getting at least a little outside your comfort zone, from Paula White to T.D. Jake's conferences to everyday pastoring of an Episcopal parish to learning new techniques of deep listening without interrupting, Paul shares how he came to be more and more convinced of God's active power to change seemingly unchangeable situations, bring a fresh breath of hope, transform human hearts, and open up startling second chances. Father Paul is a widely known and much-loved writer and theologian within the Episcopal Church. He has been a parish priest, he's led a seminary and other institutions, and he's the founder of Mockingbird Ministries, who do such a wonderful job of spreading the message of grace throughout the church. His book is titled Peace in the Last Third of Life, A Handbook of Hope for Boomers, and it's available in paper or electronic form any place you get your books online. Paul speaks here with our own TLC editor, Mark Michael, about the stories and the encounters that led him to write this book and what he hopes we might get from it, whatever stage of life we may be in. And one final note, we did have a little bit of trouble with a microphone on this one, but the conversation was still too good to pass up. We trust ourselves to your grace and are confident that you're going to enjoy this conversation between Mark and Paul. Welcome, Paul, to the Living Church podcast. And thank you, Mark. I'm delighted to be here. I love the Living Church. I've been a fan, it feels like, for 45 years, and uh, this is a, a great step. Thank you for having me. So you're writing this book uh, as a boomer to boof, to your fellow boomers. And uh, the message here, I think, speaks powerfully to boomers because it's so steeped in uh, the culture of, of those formative years of life, which you talk about uh, really shaping the rest of our, our inner life in profound ways. I'm curious, do you think that the process you're describing, finding peace and hope in the face of death, is that particularly difficult for boomers? Is it harder for them than it might have been for their parents, say? And, and why do you think that is? Well, I think the process of facing death is universal, has never been uh, any, in ever in any culture accompanied by anything less than awesome fear and massive anxiety and huge worry and tremendous regret. <laughs> but uh, the further a generation is removed from spiritual resources, and as a Christian, I would say the further our own generation has allowed itself to become removed from the great resources of the scripture and of the church and of the sacraments and of the love of God, explicitly, 
the more death becomes a question that is so radical that you almost don't want to even ask it. It almost fades out completely and it becomes a sort of a something, a must to avoid, to quote the Herman's Hermits. And therefore, um, you find that the further away, and I believe this will be more so even with your generation, Mark, and with others right up to our current millennial generation, the sort of deliberate no-no of honest uh, facing of the end of human existence on this planet as an individual, that is, is harder and harder to even imagine. So yes, insofar as I'm a child of the 60s, where the secularizing trend was uh, clearly um, uh, coming on loud and clear, I think it is probably harder than it was for our more churched parents and grandparents. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's very wise, and, and what a blessing that you're trying to provide some resources from within the idiom that folks of your generation know so well. It's wonderful. Uh, this book was your quarantine project, though obviously it flows out of many decades of observation, thought, and writing. How do you think the experience of the last several months has intensified the need for the message you're trying to share with this book? Well, everyone that I've uh, spoken to when I was writing the book and working on it and hunkering down in isolation here where I live seemed to immediately respond, oh, I want to read that. I need to read that. There was a kind of opportunity, and I think there probably still is at this moment, uh, under the skin of a great many people, uh, given the, um, the, the massive red light that the quarantine has been to all activity customarily. I think that people are open. People are asking questions, fundamental questions. And obviously, with so many people on the front page of the New York Times, 100,000 names, wasn't it something to that effect just recently? This is going to make everyone sort of directly have to deal. So um, I wrote it partly to address what seemed to me a more immediate, subjective, and actual questioning about the core foundations of, of life and death and the future. And that's, uh, that's why it seemed like a mandate to, to write it, really, and make it available as soon as possible. No, that's, uh, that's very valuable. A recurrent theme in the book is, is abreaction. This is uh, uh, the healing potential of grappling with the painful experiences in our early life. This may be unfamiliar territory for some of our readers, and I was wondering if you could explain this concept and talk about how you find it helpful in your own experience and in your care of others. Let me try to describe human existence from the cradle to the grave as kind of one of those Doppler maps you see on the Weather Channel or when you look on your weather app. The, um, the Doppler shows um, when a storm passes over where you're living, the, it's like a globule or a sunspot. It, it gets darker the worse it is and, and larger and more intense. And when there's no heavy weather over your life, there's no globule or, or heavy uh, kind of cloud. Well, I would say that pain in people's experience of life from the cradle to the grave, and especially in the first third of life, pain is a little bit like those Dopplers. You look back at your life and you can almost put into words the times or the events or the circumstances where the pain was up, the pain was worse. You remember the the loss of your father at an early age. You remember uh, some disaster that happened that you had to weather in your 20s or teens or earlier. And these are like that Doppler map. And so these these areas of pain that are directly um, tied to some sort of suffering that you underwent are the punctuation points of your entire life. And they tend to be massively gathered in the first third of life. Now, 
Abreaction is a technical term from psychoanalysis, and but I've, I've, this is a, an actual, this is not a, an importation. It's a very legitimate universal use. Abreaction is when you return in your thinking and your expression and your articulation to one of those Doppler times when there was a storm in your life or a, or, or a terrible frustration or a deep wound that has always been there but has been kind of suppressed because pain is always suppressed. We don't like it. We don't want it. We want to avoid it, of course. So abreaction is a word that describes when the pain is touched, somehow, usually a friendly, loving listener, a kind, a truly interested human being on the other side of uh, the equation or of the argument or the relationship seems directly interested in what most matters to you. And as your kind of reservations and uh, strictures and denials of the pain are warmed and subdued by someone else's love, out comes the real thoughts that you have. And this is pain very often. And abreaction is when the pain comes out finally, and it's different with men and women, and it's different with every individual, but there's almost always something there. When the pain comes out, it causes uh, an external, like a volcano, that the inner man magma and lava suddenly bursts out or a pressure cooker and out it comes usually in the form of tears or shaking or some terrible sobbing some deep very very painful but purgative and healing expression in the outside of what's been bothering you in the inside and has been bottled up. And that's what abreaction is. And you see this in parish life in human beings. You, you finally, you meet somebody and you finally are able to talk to them about what really matters, which is almost always some form of hidden, deepest, suppressed suffering. And when that comes out, in the context of love, some loving relationship, then you're forever in the person's debt and you sort of automatically want to be with them and befriend them and usually marry them. And um, that's the power of the healing that abreaction can engender in a wounded human being. And that's all of us. That's that's a point you return to often. We we all carry these wounds and, and long for the kind of release that we can find through this process. Attentive listening, um, you, you equate it uh, in one place with a grace in action and, and one-way love, that this is uh, one of the most powerful human experiences we can have of the love that God has for us. Um, and then you have this wonderful appendix that your wife, Mary, wrote. I found it really practical and step-by-step -step about how to do this kind of attentive listening more helpful, more carefully. How would things change if we were able to, to listen more deeply to the people that we know and love best? Well, um, this is a real revolution in one's thinking if one actively begins to, to embody this. Now, when I was first beginning in the parish ministry, I heard a lot about listening, but I so associated it with non-judgmentalism and sort of a kind of checking out of any kind of moral precepts or moral structure that I, I felt it, it, to me, early days, it seemed a little lame. But then um, through some marvelous uh, teaching of a psychiatrist named Frank Lake, who's long dead in England, and also Anne Long, who's still alive, but is in latter days, uh, she became a canon of Guilford Cathedral and taught Mary and me. Um, the rudiments of listening, and they were both profoundly evangelical, if not charismatic in the narrow sense of the word. 
Anglican Christians, I discovered that what listening was simply was giving you permission uh, in the context of empathy to speak about what's most on your mind. Most people's conversations are just taking turns talking. But what real listening is, you simply say, well, now tell me, Bill, um, tell me what's on your, tell me a little bit about yourself. That's all you really need to do. Within a very short time, you will often get an enormous amount can come forward. Now, of course, you have to be willing as a, it's a real embodiment of Christian kenosis of, of, of emptying because you have to be willing to, to be like Christ was, that is to say, to empty yourself um, of any kind of autonomy and uh, um, advice or your own experience or some kind of interpretation. You have to be willing to let the person say it as they see it. And yet what? almost always happens is that when a person is listened to, they not only understand themselves, they instantly feel better or very radically feel better. And then they often are able to undertake some kind of non-paralyzed action, some small step, some little movement towards health and hope and promise that is um, really quite striking. So listening, I, I, I take that with no strings attached. It's not listening to get a particular answer, listening to get a particular result. It's listening pure and simple. And then by the Holy Spirit, God, in my experience, almost always seems to open up a person's sorrow. And therein lies the, the roots, not the whole, but the roots and often the inception of a, of a new beginning. Profound. And I think uh, something that many of us can learn how to do so much more effectively, and that would be a great blessing to others in our lives. You make the claim at several points in the book that moderate mainline religion, which is the religion of conventional Episcopalianism, is incapable or is or has great difficulty fostering the kind of transformation we need in order to face death with hope and peace. You talk about your own more recent experience with Pentecostalism um, and uh, how this has changed and deepened your own faith. I w could you just say a little bit more about that, w how your own experience in recent years has helped you at this stage in your life? I really, I, it would be easy for me to get sort of on a high horse <clears throat> or maybe even polemic, which I truly wish to avoid in terms of one's own background in the church and hope. What I, what I have found in the pandemic is that the prayers that I hear for the most part in my own denomination, uh, obviously our church, the Episcopal Church, and generally speaking in mainstream Christianity, have basically been prayers of uh, God help us to get through this or give us the resources to confront this terrible problem. But very few of the prayers that I've heard have been prayers along the lines of, Lord, by your power, you alone who can do all things, defeat this particular adversary or um, protect us from or heal this poor sufferer from the impact of it. In other words, the prayers tend to be empathetic and dear, but they seem to lack the dimension uh, according to which Jesus operated, by which, uh, you know, God can actually is fully in a position to make a change. Now, what <clears throat> happened it with myself, and I'm a, I'm a, I, I attend a very happily a wonderful Episcopal church in Winter Park, Florida with Mary, my wife. We're both active and very happy to be at the Episcopal Church in Winter Park. But also I attend or I have come to attend from time to time, usually at night when I can, you know, uh, when, when I'm not have something else. 
an African-American um, Pentecostal parish that is near where we live. That is an, an entire different ball of wax. However, at one point uh, about three years ago, when I was in a, a time of real questioning about a, some particular elements in my own pain and sorrow inherited from the past that didn't seem to be giving way, I, by sheer chance, I decided out of curiosity to go to this church. And the minister, it was a, a, a lady who's the senior pastor of the church, her sermon, uh, for some reason, uh, it hit me amidships. It was a healing service when they lay on hands on people. We do this in our tradition as well. But something about her, that she actually seemed to be claiming that you could bring an impossible situation to God, and he was able, is able to supernaturally correct or redeem or restore. And for some reason, that message came across to me in a fresh manner, and I was arrested. My attention was arrested, and actually I, I was, in fact, delivered of something that had been a, a quagmire in my inner side for many years. And I was so sort of struck. I, I said, Mary, you've never believed this this sermon it, it's for some reason. And so that gave me a kind of, uh, and listening to this preacher, and uh, uh, we do relief work there on uh, twice a week. I go, and during the pandemic, they're distributing food in a great, great, large, thousands and thousands of pounds of food to poor uh, people uh, in Apopka, Florida. And I go and help. And I'm usually the only white person there. Um, it, it just happens. I feel a little sheepish. I don't want to make them feel funny, but the prayers that we have just before the these the the thousands of cars that line up for our food drop there uh, as we're getting our boxes ready to give out to these people the prayers of the deacon and the ministers uh, there we would call them pentecostal prayers they have such electricity and such boundless confidence that god is working in the now that you you almost have to kind of faint afterwards you sort of lose your all the all the energy in your legs goes now some people would say well you know that's one way of looking at it. But for me, it's been a kind of enrichment of things that were already deeply present in my own tradition, but it's been a kind of burnishing of them. Did you know that the first issue of The Living Church magazine came out in 1878? It invited a small group of Midwestern American readers to be active, informed Christians, influencing their local communities and encouraging the highest possible standards in church teaching, preaching, music, art. If you're not a subscriber, consider it. Subscription rates start at $9.95 a year for digital and about $5 an issue for a traditional magazine. You can subscribe for our next issue at livingchurch.org and just click the subscribe tab. Uh, one of the, the the concepts that you said in the book you had encountered through the church, the, the Pentecostal church you participate in there in Winter Park, is this concept of soul ties. And I, I found this idea really interesting. And I was curious if you could just say a little bit more about it and kind of how it ties into the this work of finding peace and the ab reaction and the other parts of, of what you're holding out to us as, as, a, as a way through this last third of life. Well, thank you, Mark, for <clears throat> underlining that. It's so funny. It's so determined by culture because you can be talking to someone who has some kind of a background in Pentecostalism of any ethnicity or background, and you mention the word soul tie, and they all sort of light up, oh, yeah, I know about that. 
but I'm I'm just one person. But I had spent you know decades and decades, and still am a, a presbyter, a, you know, an Episcopal priest, and uh, it was a totally new idea. Let me say what it, what 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 happened. I was describing to a a minister at this Pentecostal church that um, I had had long ago in in adolescence a, uh, a, a uh, an unresolved let's just say an unresolved situation that uh, still seemed a little unresolved even after 50 years of so many other things <clears throat> had been resolved and had been helped but there was still one episode uh, just call it an episode of pain long ago that had 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 its uh, an ability to kind of kind of tie me up from time to time when it would come back into my consciousness which even after many years occasionally it would and then I'd it would be there like a piece of undigested, like in Scrooge, you know, a piece of undigested something or other. And I was telling this person about it. And then she said, oh, well, you just have a soul tie. And I said, what? She said, yes, a soul tie. I, and I said, well, pardon me, but you, I don't have the slightest idea what you're talking about. And she said, well, what it means is St. Paul said that, that when you um, get involved in <clears throat> certain kinds of relationships that are in the New Testament sense illicit, you become part of the person. The, it's in Second Corinthians and that, that you, you become bonded to this past painful situation in a way that's almost organic or, or substantial. And therefore, God needs to break the tie because it's, a, it's not, a, it's not a, a tie that has value. It, it's, it's long, long gone, but it seems to have a kind of Gordian knot power. And she said that we need to pray for God, not man, quote, end of quote, not therapy, good as that is, not spiritual direction, marvelous as that is, but occasionally there's something that seems to resist even the best of uh, work. And so she prayed that this soul tie would be broken. And uh, and and it was. Um, and I uh, remember just walking out, I said, good grief, um, where have I been all these years? And, and then I went to somebody, actually an Episcopalian, the lady who works in a diocese in the Northeast uh, in healing, but with a little bit of Pentecostalism thrown in. And I said, have you ever heard of a soul tie? And she said, and I've known this woman, a very devout Episcopalian forever. She said, oh yes, I know all about that. <laughs> I just about died on the spot. Uh, you know, why didn't you tell me? But um, soul tie, I mean, listen to our listeners, is, is, is think about it. There may in fact be a relationship of some kind. It could be with any number of different individuals or circumstances, depending on you, you, the listener. But there may be something that is still kind of has you by the throat or has you by the shoulders or has you like a belt and you can't quite bust out of it. And this is what, uh, because it's almost uh, uh, become almost part of you and has to be really cut for you to be a free person. Sometimes I meet people whose mothers have their effect in old age of being like a soul tie or I have a sister or a brother or a former husband who acts in that manner on their insides. And that's really why the soul tie theme became important to me. Mm -hmm. So that sort of release that comes through God's work only that allows us to find this true peace and healing. Oh. You, the book closes with a moving chapter on the Christian hope, and much of the focus here is on this freedom that Christ offers. Uh, you, you use the metaphor of St. Bartholomew, who's been flayed of his skin and sort of carries it around with him as a, as a metaphor here, and, and finding the fulfillment of our longings in union with Christ. There's a beautiful chapter. 
But one of the things I was curious about is you don't say much about the resurrection of the body. And, you know, at several points in that chapter, you say, now, I'm not arguing for a sort of platonic escapism here, but I'm curious about how that works out for you, or is there some way in which there's a restoration to the things that were unsettled in life um, in the world to come? I don't know. It's a speculative question, but I, where does the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and the new earth fit into this vision of hope for you? Mark, that is an extremely diagnostic and important question. What I had to finally decide, I, I decided literally to 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 just not go there um, because uh, I was what I had I'd been influenced here, and I do want to say this by the Catholic school of thought that's known as centering prayer. We ha- contemplative prayer. We have it in our tradition of God knows in the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion, but it primarily goes back to Father Thomas Keating and Thomas Merton, and together in some ways more contemporarily with Richard Rohr. But I would like to stick with Keating's teaching of it because I've read it so much. Something about the false self and the true self, and that the false part of us, this ego-grabbing, libido, action-consequence person that really drives us into despair has to be in some sense uh, kind of let go in favor of the, you might say, the divine spark or the ultimate enduring uh, part of us that is one with God. And so I chose to to stress that. But what I could have added, and I might do this, but it would be a, almost in a whole nother study, is taking then C.S. Lewis's uh, thoughts about the bodily resurrection in his book, Miracles, which I regard as one of his great books, and then talking more about how the resurrection of Christ in particular, especially his appearances after his resurrection and after at Easter, are depict a resurrected body of glory that is still his. It's still recognizably his, but it's also of resurrected uh, glory. But that, I would be delighted to carry that theme forward. But in a way, I, I couldn't touch everything, so I decided to to, to take the St. Bartholomew route. Yeah, it was a very inventive use of that imagery of St. Bartholomew that's uh, stuck with me very much. Many of the book's most insightful moments were observations that arose from your long experience as a pastor. Things you saw at funerals, at deathbeds, deep conversations you had that went well or went poorly. And I found this book really helpful in from as a pastor, particularly as someone who has a, a good number of parishioners who are probably in the last third or maybe even the last, uh, you know, t- tenth of life, um, and who have to exercise pastoral care yeah, of folks like that. And I'm curious if you have any guidance for those of us who have that calling and responsibility, um, how we can be there and assist and and and. Uh, guide our parishioners through this time. I have written about this before, but let me, um, I would say that the key to a successful parish, I'm speaking here as an Episcopal priest and a rector, um, but just my own sense of it after these years would say that the key is first preaching the word of God, that is to say the gospel of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> the one full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, satisfaction, and oblation for the sins of the whole world. But that's not blah, blah, blah. That's that's real. In other words, numero uno is a gospel that is rooted in the external and remarkable, unique work of Christ. And that people need to hear that they have a place to go with their unfinished business. But number two, for a pastoral ministry to be successful, you have to have good pastoral care. The two are 
linked. You really can't have one without the other, although you can be a successful pastor and be a lousy preacher and or be a great preacher and a rather lame pastor and still succeed. But the best, the ideal parish, and many of, of us have it in us, given whoever we really are and our own limitations, is to be someone who actively wants to assist people who are in pain and suffering. And I want to underline the point you just made. Any Episcopal parish or any parish I've ever known, most of the people in it have some presenting symptom. That is to say, whether they're 30 or 18 or they're um, on the last third of life, there is some area of their life which is in anxiety and in distress and often in deep sorrow. And our uh, job uh, and listening together with faith and the power of God, can make an enormous, really a unique contribution to someone being able to, to really say what's on their minds. And when a person really vouchsafes to the priest uh, in the sense of uh, God's presence with them in his humanity, if someone can really tell you what's actually happening it is eternal. It's enduring. It's the most powerful thing in the world. And uh, I had seen this happen in what feels to me like numberless cases, but it's not. It's, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just one person. But I, I even saw it yesterday. I was talking to an African-American man who's about four times larger. He's an extraordinary athlete. In fact, has been a professional athlete. And I'm talking to this man who's a little bit reserved about me for whatever reason. I don't know what, but I just asked him a question. I once just said, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. And out came extraordinary avouchings of his real, uh, his, the, the things that are really on his mind, children, career, life, marriage. It just came out. And I said, once again, um, uh, caring, uh, listening, and always saying a little prayer as you ask, the, and not interrupting, because usually I interrupt because I'm just a human being. But at my best, um, God seems to get me focused on some other idea and I forget to speak. And then the person really comes out. Can I give you one example of this? Back at Grace Church in New York City, a man came to us. I knew them well. I was about to marry them. It was two days before their marriage. They were in their late 20s, lovely people. But he was having what we would call commitment anxiety. And he began to talk about the fact that he couldn't go through the wedding that was in two days. He just wasn't going to be able to go through it. But his fiance had said, well, at least go talk to Paul and tell him you know, that you can't go through with the wedding. And he began to talk. Now, at the, I was very young, and for some reason, something else was on my mind. I don't know what it was, but something completely Martin, had nothing to do with him. I was absorbed in my own thoughts about something else. So I didn't say anything as he spoke, only because of I had something else in my mind. I didn't even hear what he had to say. And he finally said at the end, well, what do you think, Paul? And I said, well, I'm not sure, but... Um, I'll bet you you'll get the right, you'll, something, something effective, I'll bet you you'll come up with the right answer. And the only reason I said it is I, I didn't even know what to say because I wasn't listening. Well, he goes home, having been listened to, and he goes home to the, the fiance and says, you know, I've changed my mind. I feel so much better. I want to marry you. Thank God. Now, this couple has been married 40 years. And, I, and his, wife, his fiance called me the next day, right before the wedding. What happened? What did you do? A miracle has happened. He wants to get married. Everything is better. And I said, you know, I don't know. I, 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 for some reason, I said nothing. Well, I say that, Mark, only because that taught me something. Grace in action, right? Let, uh, get out of the way and let God do his work. Well, I, I, you said it. You said it so well. Uh, do you have anything else you'd like to share, Paul? I mean, this book, I think, would be a great gift to people of all generations. I, I want to emphasize that. As someone who's not a baby boomer, I found much in here that helped me 
in looking at my death and thinking about things from my past and praying about them. And so, you know, don't if you're not a boomer, don't be put off by the title, right? Is that that must be part of what your hope is here? If I did have anything to say that I haven't been able to say yet, I would, especially now, because we're in a time of enormous, uh, uh, really uh, tremendous self-searching, both in on the front of race and, of course, as the pandemic seems to be easing, but it's very much in the front screen with everybody in different forms, no matter where you live. Uh, in a time of great difficulty, I, I want to focus, just I want to underline one more time that the great issues of life, there are great, great social issues enormous significance, no question about that. But the greatest issues for most people are the interpersonal, intrapsychic, relationship-oriented losses, hurts, and sorrows that need to be addressed. And as a boomer, let me go back to the musical Hair, which came out in 1968. You remember? Uh, even uh, it was the great people actually got naked on stage. It was unbelievably successful. But there's a song in it that embodies what I'm saying. Uh, in a, the song is called... Um, easy to be hard. And it became a top 10 song by Three Dog Night, but it was originally part of Hair. And in it, the heroine is saying, how can people be so heartless? How can they be so cruel? Especially people who care about strangers, who care about evil and social injustice. Why do you only care about the bleeding crowd? Why not care about a needing friend? I need a friend. In other words, uh, I want to always say in the middle of times of enormous social stress, and we've been through them before and we'll be through them again, and they all have claims on us, that the church's greatest word is still, in my opinion, a universal word to that needing friend, that person who is not part of a group not part of a, a particular constituency or a particular a kind of classification of persons, but everybody is a needing friend who is needing uh, compassionate listening and pointing towards the the supernatural power of God. So I leave you with a quote from Hare from 1968. Uh, but go back and listen to the song. It's a, it's a winner for our time. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Paul. This is this has really been fascinating. The book, again, is Peace in the Last Third of Life, a handbook of hope for boomers. You can find an electronic uh, digital copy available now. The hardback version should be available in about a week. I think you will find it a really illuminating uh, message of, of grace and, and, and of a, holding out a path to freedom and peace uh, for all people. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. I'm Amber Noel, your host and I've been glad to be with you. Peace.